I'm Helen Lowe, and this is Naked Conversations, Women Uninterrupted, a series of dialogues I'm sharing with a soul friend and fellow life learner, Lisa Fitzhugh, because we believe that relating to self and other with honesty and vulnerability unlocks the transformational potential needed in a world poised for collapse. While some might challenge the notion that conversation is a catalyst for real change, we trust this most humble of actions is precisely what's needed to dismantle what doesn't work and cultivate a more inclusive and sustainable way of being. Whoever you are, we're honored to have you in the conversation. We're back. Are we recording? We're back. Oh, good morning. Good morning, Lisa. Uh, Here we are. It's like end times and beginning times, both in one. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could start by you sharing something of your inspiration for why you felt like now is the time for us Mm. to talk again in this Mm. way. Um, Just a few days ago when it was, when we were still thinking that we could be with other people. Well, I was anyway, but I had a dinner with someone not out, but at the house. And uh, we were both talking about this feeling that we had, like we had like a rash and the rash was um, partly induced by, so much was happening and we've been thinking about change dramatic change for so many years and imagining a new world for so many years and actually feeling it in our viscera you know that the world we were living in or the world that we're still kind of in right now has has run its course and so we could feel this intensity of wanting to be present and start articulating what this could mean. How can we help? How can we participate in what's clearly the, the signaling of a dying of all these old forms and, the, and potentially an opening to a very new one? And, that, um, and yet here we were more in quarantine, more isolated, um, and, and, but itchy to, to contribute or to do what we know how to do to um, do what our what it bring our gifts that in the moment so boy it took me like a week and a half because I've been in my own fear around all this I could see that um, I wasn't prepared to do anything on behalf of anyone for the last couple weeks but um, suddenly you know I could a shift happened and I think it was in part induced by a, a, a Zoom call I had with like 90 people the night before where there was really this emphasis on the power of prayer and truth-telling right now, mm-hmm. the importance of prayer and truth-telling. And um, I woke up in the morning and I suddenly had some ground under my feet in a new way. And then I wrote, um, uh, and all of this is coming together to make me feel like, there's a there's this point at which when we have enough ground under our own feet as individuals we'll be prepared to then share what we can do at that juncture but if you try to do it when you don't have the ground on your own feet it's sort of um for, you know 
not necessarily a, a very good contribution. So it took me that while to get the ground under my feet. And then um, I knew that our conversations were, have been healing to a lot of people. A lot of people have told me that, you know, when they, it's, they've listened to our conversations multiple times. Um, it's not a big group of people. It's a, <laughs> a small slice of individuals, but that doesn't matter. It's, if it's helpful, it's helpful. And I knew that you and I would have a lot to say mm-hmm. at this time. We need each other. We need each other. We need each other. And I've been struck, you know, as you point out in, in what you share, that at the time when we really need each other the most is a time where we're physically being asked to isolate, to save each other, you know? Um, and what is, and what is the wisdom in that? Um, I, there's a group, um, my partner, Stephen and I host, um, a group here in our home on Monday nights, twice a month. And, um, the last one, it was a week or a week and a half ago. And, uh, we were trying to be careful, but there was a cavalierness in me. Um, as, as I've heard in many, many, many people, it was still so early and it seemed so absurd, that so extreme, the measures still. I, I, I couldn't get my mind around it, really, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I felt, I'm strong, you know? <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to be fine. And so, you know, we, we really sanitized the house and wiped down everything and um, asked people to, you know, come only if they're healthy and bring their own hand sanitizer because there was none to be found, you know. Um, and, um, and we met and, and then the next day I started to feel a little bit sick. It had been an intense period of time, like leading up to that. Um, and. I thought this is just a this is just a cold, and it may well have been. But as the week unfolded, the symptoms started to match. You know, check, 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 all the symptoms um, for mild cases of the coronavirus. Uh, I remember Stephen and I were listening at one point to a video of a woman who was being interviewed, who had in Seattle, who had been. Um, diagnosed with coronavirus and everything she was describing. I was like, well, uh-oh. <laughs> um, and then I felt the horror. Like I knew I was going to be fine, but um, I, what did I risk, you know, mm-hmm. um, and having other people okay. around. Now we were very careful and it seems like nothing was spread, but we don't know for sure. And, and um, the way this testing goes, I can't confirm whether or not I've had it, you know, mm. I can't confirm that the people I suspect, you know, that I was, that, that Stephen and I had entertained several days before who had been traveling from New York to Seattle and spent four days in Seattle. They also got sick with very, it sounds like similar symptoms, mm. but because of the limited testing, we couldn't know for sure. And mm. all of this is to say mm. it was a wake up that we are interconnected and we affect each other in invisible ways, both quote positively and quote negatively. And, Mm. and so 
this virus for me is making my own, um, the impact I have on people quite visible. Um, it's mm-hmm. really raising my awareness mm-hmm. to the level of interconnection with much more sensitive care. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. It's refining it and then also refining how much we need each other. So actually mm-hmm. this coming Monday, we're now going to have a Zoom call because we need each other. We don't want to stop meeting. Right, right. And yet there's this new level of care. Yeah. I mean, my hope is that we don't go to the extreme. You know, in the aftermath of all this, we don't become paranoid about um, touching and connecting with each other. I mean, that would be... Uh, that would be a loss, right, for the species, <laughs> um, big time. I mean, and I just think that over time we're gonna we're gonna remember again how much we need, you know, touch and connection and hugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I wrote a piece um, yesterday, and the metaphor I'm using is that we've all been in our little boats and different kinds of crafts. Some of us are in yachts, some of us are on logs the truth is we've all been upended. We're all in the water together. Hmm. And the thing that's interesting about imagining what is the skills now that we need in the big open ocean and literally free floating in a big open ocean is um, imagine that we're out there and we're having to um, tread water and be calm and breathe deeply and trust the buoyancy of the salt water but we also, if we were in circle together, right? If imagine we were in circle together, we wouldn't hold on to each other because that would be a weight, additional weight on the body. Mm-hmm. So we would have to stay, right? We'd, we'd be taking care of ourselves, mm-hmm. but we would be, try to be connected to be assuring each other that we were okay. So I keep, that metaphor keeps unfolding. It keeps giving me new insights about where we are right now and what is it that we need right to do and to relearn right now so that, so that we, more of us uh, survive and many fewer of us suffer? You know, there's a scenario in that upending story mm-hmm. where too many people go into their fear place and we attract sharks and we, you know, um, we don't share the few resources, a few floating devices that are around. And so nobody, bunches of people don't get a rest. I mean, there's a whole set of scenarios that could be quite catastrophic if we don't remember how to be up in the open ocean at this time. Um, so I, I'm working with that a lot. And the main reason I'm holding on to that metaphor so much for myself is that it has become a prayer. I feel like I can wake up every morning and see myself in this new environment, this sort of oceanic, totally different space. So how am I being in that? How can everything I'm doing be more reflective of that particular uh, medium? Um, and yeah, I've just been working with it a lot. It just came in yesterday. And so I'm wondering, I'm, I'm, I was eager to share it. I'm so grateful that you did. Yeah, I I read that piece that you wrote. It was beautifully articulated. And um, I was describing it to Stephen this morning uh, at breakfast. And uh, we both were so moved by this image of being upended. Um, 
I think it's potent. Uh, and, and I also like that it means like the, the crafts we're in have been upended. But really, if we pay attention to what's going on, there's still a wholeness in us, right? It's just our, our situation has changed. Right. Our relationship to the water is totally in, different. Yeah. You know, and he actually thought of this quote from um, Leonard Cohen. Uh, it, and I, look, I looked up the, the broader context of it. It was from an interview in uh, The Approach of the New Millennium. I'd like to share because I think it, it feels uh, relevant to your metaphor. From my point of view, we're in the midst of a flood of biblical proportions. It's both exterior and interior. At this point, it's more devastating on the interior level. Right? This is from 1989. At this wow. point, it's more devastating on the interior level, mm. but it's leaking into the real world. Mm. I see everybody holding on in their individual way to an orange crate, to a piece of wood, and we're passing each other in this swollen river that has pretty well taken down all landmarks and pretty well overturned everything we've got. And people insist under these circumstances on describing themselves as liberal or conservative. <laughs> it seems to me completely mad. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's so apropos. Wow. Yeah. What word did he use to describe the interior change being so much bigger than the exterior at this well, point? He said, it's both exterior and in interior, mm -hmm, this, mm -hmm. this flood of biblical mm -hmm. proportions. Um, at this point, it's devastating on the interior level, mm. but it's leaking into the real world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that it speaks to what's been happening to our interiors, this increasing sense of hollowness or pressure or both, you know, um, that, mm. that so many of us have been feeling like, is this it? Is this really what we're here for? You know? Um, and we, we've been so busy doing the things that we do to, to just stay alive and kind of keep on the, the hamster wheel, so to speak, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, while, but interiorly, <laughs> um, feeling like, ah, the flood is coming. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that no one has said, I have not heard anyone say, which is really interesting. And maybe I'm not, I'm not talking to enough people just right quite yet, but I haven't heard anyone say, God, I just wish things would get back to normal. Like that's not where, those are not words I've heard out of anybody's mouth recently. And um, so it speaks to me about the hunger that was there, even if it was deep and inaccessible in a lot of people for the change. I mean, it was re that's reflected in our politics, the disappointment people have that Bernie isn't gonna be the candidate, you know, for so many people who, for whom Bernie is a reflection of, of real change, bigger change, more change. That hunger is so present with young people. They're really disappointed that Bernie isn't going to be um, the candidate for, because given what he's willing to, how far he's willing to push to break through. 
Um, yeah. So what I think is interesting is part of what's breaking down is that um, some part of us all know that there is no going back after this. And what will that mean? And we don't know. We don't know yet. I think, I think, you know, when you speak about the political disappointment, and I'm sure that's, of course, not true across the board, but that political disappointment is, it feels like what you're speaking of, this interior knowing that things need to radically change. There is no going back. And um, it's not that I think Joe Biden isn't a, you know, a good person or an interesting person or someone I might like to have a, you know, a beer with or whatever, you know, um, like I'm sure he'd be an interesting dude. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but there's something about this old way of looking for a hero to save us, looking for someone to make it normal, make mm-hmm. us comfortable, allay our fears that mm-hmm. some part of us knows isn't really the answer. And, but then the alternative is so terrifying because we just don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah. We have lived with patriarchy and, and embedded in that patriarchy is the contract that there's someone who will take care of us, a father energy, right? And that means that, whole, that we've developed atrophy. We've let systems, uh, others create... Uh, mythology that um, a group of people could do the structuring and the caring and the creating the, the, a, a world that looks more certain mm-hmm. and give us that feeling so that we could, um, the, you know, sort of rest in that. And that, that has led to a, such an imbalance. And, and obviously look what's happening. We're resentful of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's, it's gone on too long and it's, um, it's become very um, authoritarian and exclusive, not inclusive. It's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not able to hold all the multiple dimensions of a holistic way of thinking. Yeah, I think that that's, that's one of our addictions, actually, mm. is the addiction we have to an authority or a, a patriarchal kind of institution that um, promises, makes a bunch of promises to us. You know, what in, in occurs to me as you're speaking is how we've um, kind of projected our, not only our own authority, but we've projected community onto corporations um, and, and the government that keeps them going, you know, um, and supports them. Uh, it's really interesting to think about that when, when we, when you talk about addiction and we think about, I, I read some story that Amazon is having a hard time keeping up with people's expectations that they help to set, you know, or not help to, <laughs> they, they single-handedly they set. set of, of, you know, getting something delivered in two days time. Oh. And, and you think about resilience that have, we've become so fragile that, um, if we don't know what we don't know how to care for ourselves, we want the corporation to bring us our goods to our door in 
in, in rapid speed. (laughs) (laughs) And understandably, because we then, the thing is, it hasn't given us more leisure time or whatever. We've actually filled up the time. So we are like spinning more quickly on the hamster wheel. We actually feel like we need those quote conveniences to be able to keep moving on the hamster wheel faster and faster Mm -hmm. um, because we can't do these things for ourselves anymore and how fascinating that this virus is as devastating as it is and I don't want to take anything away <clears throat> from the people who are suffering far more greatly than I did with you know a very mild cold mm-hmm. um, I don't want to take anything away from the suffering of people who are very worried about their loved ones or who have lost them and also it seems to me that this virus is an ally uh, or we could choose to see it as an ally. We can make it an ally mm-hmm. in helping us to recognize it's, it's upending us the way your metaphor is so beautiful, helping us to see what was maybe too hard to see while we were spinning on the hamster wheel. Like, yeah. could we use this time of being upended to, to slow down, to, as you wrote in, in your beautiful piece yesterday, just like, feel the water on our skins or see see the sun or see each other or just slow down mm-hmm. and use this time to evaluate what has my life been like where have i just been what is my interior world like that maybe i've been too busy um mm-hmm. to give space to Mm-hmm. And then from that place, not from this panicky fear, oh, we've got to fix things. We've got to either make mm-hmm. it the way it was before or radically change it. Maybe from this place of more interior reflection, we start to dream together about well, what is it that we actually want instead. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I love what you just said. If we slow it down and we're dreaming together of what we actually want and we try to be really intentional i mean if we're really intentional about that um it's i that gives me such hope the sense of hopefulness about where we're going and i think we're going to be i mean you mentioned your acknowledgement that for many people this is a much harsher teacher that is people are dying and losing loved ones and it's scary um and i listened to a um, public health uh, expert um, from johns hopkins last week who was talking very calmly about pandemics because he spent his career studying pandemics that are potentially way worse so his view of corona compared to ours is extremely calm. He was saying, boy, I'm, you know, we've run out all kinds of scenarios with avian flu where you have a 60% fatality rate. So as I listened to him talking, I, my, my nervous system was getting calmed because I was realizing that we have been given a very mild, relative to what they know is possible, pandemic at this juncture. It's, it's excruciating. It's going to have huge impacts. They talk about it being like, you know, we're going to be recovering like we were out of the Great Depression. Um, I heard that from Andrew Cuomo uh, yesterday, and I can see already that that's possible, right? Or whatever. I mean, you know, we don't know yet, but 
but truly the horror of what if we were, you know, even, even three months ago, before any of this was happened, I knew we were set for social disruption. And I imagined a bunch of scenarios that were, could have been much more horrific, actually. Um, and so, yes, I'm finding some gratefulness that we've sort of been, we didn't dodge a bullet. <laughs> But in a weird sort of way, we've been given just this incremental, very strong wake-up call for humanity um, that allows us and gives us space to really reflect and think about where we're going. And there will be enough of us here to do that. Right. <laughs> right? You know, versus having a nuclear catastrophe. Right. That's, that's a nut. That was another scenario I did conceive of, you know, we've all thought of that, but it's like, we didn't really want to look. Mm-hmm. That was, that was, that's so scary. And this is scary, but it's different and it gives us a slight reprieve. And boy, do I really want to take full advantage of it Yeah, because I don't want to then, if we don't learn, to have to get a stronger message. And we all know if we don't learn, this is what I know in my own life, if I don't learn from a message of what happens to me physically in my own body, whether when I got cancer, if I hadn't learned from that, I would have gotten a stronger message later. It was an invitation to change my life. You know, this is definitely an invitation. I'm so with you, sister. And it feels like... Uh, a harsh, um, but still grace-filled dress rehearsal. Um, yeah, for, uh, you know how do we want to? How do we want to be? We we we're given an opportunity to change the way we live, mm-hmm. um, so that if this kind of thing happens again in a much stronger way mm-hmm. um, we have greater resilience or maybe this kind of thing doesn't need to come I don't know you know you we can look at this from a biological perspective um, which I don't pretend to have a very strong grasp of um, but you know it's interesting how viruses uh, are here all the time you know, and what makes them rise up and, and, and take over? Um, there's a perspective that I've been really interested in that looks at or invites us to look at, is there some connection between the level of density we're feeling, the level of heaviness, of despair, of fear, anger, frustration, that... Um, is a great host environment for certain viruses to take hold. Um, Mm. Both viruses in our biological systems, but maybe they start as viruses kind of on an emotional or mental level, you know, like fear is contagious. Mm -hmm, Totally. You know, I mean, something something that the white house thrives on is (laughs) the contagion of fear. Yeah. And, and, um, And so, and it's not to say that if we get sick, 
we're at fault. It's not a direct cause and effect kind of thing, but I can mm-hmm. see in my own system, like, hmm, what mm-hmm. made me more susceptible to something? Mm-hmm. Even, if it, it, mm-hmm. even if it was a milder form, I recognize that I was really moving through waves of despair in the weeks leading up to this, um, whenever it was that I yeah, got you mentioned infected. that. Yeah. We, Shall I say something more? Yeah, about that? yeah. I think it's it's. I can feel it collectively. I mean, those of us who have tuned into our natural human sensitivity, I think, can recognize that we can feel in the collective things um, that resonate in our own body. So it's not that despair wasn't already, there wasn't some kernel of despair in my own body that the collective despair was, was vibrating, you know, um, mm-hmm. like I was a resonance body for it out in the world. Um, but I, I think in my own life, I was feeling some quality of not being fully effective. My actions weren't fully effective, you know? I mean, there's something here in me that wants to be of service, mm. that really wants to, to, to contribute to life in creative ways, not to be a hero to save people, but to really share my gifts in a way that feel received. And, and while I have in, in small ways for lots and lots of years, there's, I can feel this, there's a certain quality of ineffectiveness that I've been aware of that I, there's some part of me that has felt frustrated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that this is also resonant with the whole, I think we are wildly creative beings that all have this kernel, this seed of creativity, this, these gifts that want to blossom and, and, and flower and give fragrance to the world. And, and some of us more than others have just felt constrained, you know, um, but all of us, I think, to some degree, feel all some of constraint. Us. All of us. And the system is so not designed to... Um, to see, witness, and nurture those. I mean, look at the education system. It's the, the, the education system is designed to feed skills into its maw so that it continue to make the scalable economic system that it wants. It's not designed to serve us. It's designed to serve it. Yeah. And I think that's, it's totally, that's just a microcosm of the larger piece of this sort of, um, disembodied thing that is trying to optimize growth constantly. Mm -hmm. That's not looking to support our individual creativity. Mm -hmm. And so it's dehuman. It's dehumanizing. Absolutely. And that's what I think we're at the end of. We're we're reached the end of for ourselves. I also, I want to go back to something you said about the contagion that was i love that word um fear of other people fear of of people coming from other countries right um uh, just fear generally fear of fear so you need to have more guns in your house whatever that fear is and now look what's happened the fear that was cultivated so successfully 
is now led us to be completely consumed with fear such that it's fear that took the markets down. And I kept looking, I kept wondering when Trump's actions would have a rebound. Something's got to get worked out. <laughs> and if this one's getting worked out right now, that, that belief that fear can work, fear and intimidation. And so if you flip that script and imagine if someone was leading by cultivating love and trust, what that would generate, what would that potentially manifest as? We've seen what fear does, the contagion and what it leads to. And, this, and, and so now we're having to really look at the aftermath, the after effects of fear. Because there's been a lot of articles recently talking about the markets are not responding to the virus. They're responding to our fear. I think that's true. There's, an, there's another part, though, you know, this idea of leading from love or leading <clears throat> from light or leading from joy or trust or all the alternatives, a kind of a higher emotional vibration than fear. Um, we can't get to that by bypassing our fear, right? We can't get to that place by bypassing our anger. <clears throat> And this is the, the other thing when I talk about my own heaviness or my own despair. What I was feeling um, just a few weeks ago, it was tuning into some quality of death. Death was so much on my mind um, before the coronavirus came to the United States, back when, you know, it was in people's mind, this thing that was happening perhaps over there, you know, there's lots of people that knew it was coming here, but uh, I think uh, in our media, it wasn't really getting played out that way. Um, I could feel this quality of death and I don't need to get into exactly what happened with me personally, because I think to the extent that it's valuable, it's valuable only to invite other people to really consider what are you most afraid of and what are you most afraid will die and and then to actually feel the feelings of despair and grief that come at the idea of losing that thing and that's what i was doing in the days that that um preceded uh me uh, getting exposed to this this virus whatever it was and and the virus was kind of also like a wake-up call to not stay there, right? To, to let myself feel it and feel it fully and let it move through me. Um, and then the chips will fall where, where they will to kind of mix my metaphors. But um, I had to feel a kind of a grief at death of what the things that were dying in me or might die around me, the people that I love who might die. Um, and all of this was outside of the context of a pandemic. So it was more like a, maybe a prescient thing. I don't know, but, um, wow, that's interesting. But I was really with um, this death, 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 death everywhere. I turned for a couple of weeks. It was really kept reoccurring. And, um, and just being present to death uh, as a natural course of life that we can't, we, we can't inoculate ourselves against, you know? And we wouldn't want to. 
Right. I mean, look at the way cultures throughout time have celebrated death because what they, it's, it's, just, it's the only way to re, be reborn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's required to generate the new. Newness, novelty, innovation, the next generation requires death. So there is, I too share with you that leading up to this, there was a focus on death for me as well. I spent mm -hmm. some time redoing my will and redoing my father and looking at my father's will because he's not doing well. He has been diagnosed with dementia. And there's all these weird things in his will and my will. And I was thinking a lot about needing, I don't have a partner, so I, I, I had to figure out who was going to take care of things if I died. And if I died, who would take care of my dad because I'm his power of attorney. So I'm all in this reflection around me being gone, taking me out of the picture, and then what happens? And not wanting to leave a mess, wanting to have it be clean enough for people when, if that were to happen so that they wouldn't be consumed with the details of, of these administrative details, that they could be with the, 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 the loss and, and have that be enough. feels like that's enough. And I think you're raising something really important around death and how we look at it and how we are with it. And what are some ways that we could get more comfortable with um, even celebrate the idea that that death is so essential to our creative natures death as a metaphor and death in reality and what do we push away and what do we end up creating as a shadow and we can see that in so many ways when we deny death when we when we don't embrace it as an ally I, I had the thought that that's, this Leonard Cohen interview might might have something to say about where we are right now in the conversation. So um, I'd like to read a little bit more, if that's all right. Yeah. Totally, that'd be great. If you stop someone on the subway and say, where are you going in the deepest sense of the word? You can't really expect an answer. I don't know why I'm here. It's a matter of what else would I be doing? Do I want to be Frank Sinatra, who's really great? This is Leonard Cohen speaking. Do I want to have uh, great retrospectives of my work? I'm not really interested in being the oldest folk singer around, he says. Would I be starting a new marriage with a young woman and raising another family? Well, I hated it when it was going on, so maybe I would feel better about it now. But I don't think so, he says. Would I want to find new drugs and buy more expensive wine? This seems to me the most luxurious response to the emptiness of my existence. I think this is the real deep entertainment religion he says, and he's in a Zen monastery at the time that he's being interviewed. Mm. Real profound and voluptuous and delicious entertainment. The real feast that is available to, to us is 
within this activity. Nothing touches it. They're, they're meditating there. He smiles, his godfatherly smile. Except if you're courting. If you're young, the hormonal thrust has its own excitement, he says. The, the, the man who's interviewing says, before I leave, he catches my eye. His voice turns soft. We are gathered here around a very, very old man who may outlive all of us and who may go tomorrow. So that gives an urgency to the practice, their meditation practice. Everybody, including Roshi, the teacher, the old man, is practicing with a kind of passionate diligence. It touches my heart, makes me proud to be part of this community. Mm. And so it just occurs to me, you know, they're, they're there with a very old teacher who, who Leonard Cohen ended up taking care of in the, up to, till his death. Um, there was a devotion to this teacher, knowing that his teacher could go- die any moment. And there's something that we're speaking of. It's like these things are dying. How are we with the dying? You know, how are we with the idea of ourselves dying, the people we love dying, the things we're familiar with dying? What ultimately becomes important? What practices do we want to be enacting? And what community do we want to create with each other that might actually touch our hearts instead Mm -hmm. of feed some kind of identity that keeps us moving on that hamster wheel that gives an illusion of meaning, you know, collecting things, consuming things, you know, attaining certain achievements. But does that all really matter if, if we're faced with death? The thing, as you were speaking, the thing that I would miss the most, and given that Leonard Cohen was a creative person, is the act of creating the, cre- the creativity, um, but m- making something new. And I'm, I was, <laughs> there's an interesting thing. We watched Apocalypse Now the other night, uh, the other night much to my chagrin, my son has been wanting to watch a lot of dark movies, which um, I've tended to wanted to tune out, but I, I jumped in with this because Apocalypse Now is an excellent piece of film. Um, but it, but um, he didn't metabolize the film very well. He stayed up all night and he was sick. I think it, that that was too much. It was too much fear and too much about death and, the, and an exploration of evil. <laughs> but um, a good friend recommended watching the documentary of the making of Apocalypse Now which she said will help you integrate the film if you watch it. And interestingly, it's made by Francis Ford Coppola's wife. Mm. So she recorded throughout the making of the film for the whole year that they were in and out of the Philippines doing this breathtakingly bold uh, effort to try to create Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness a couple years after we had just gotten out of Vietnam no production, no uh, movie company was taking it. He spent his own money. Um, the reason I bring it up is because I witnessed in both of those films the final piece of art and then the making of it, the dedication that is required to do make a bold, creative piece of work. 
he knew he had to make this. He knew he was going to be transformed. He was. A part of him died in the making of that film. He had um, fears of suicide, that every, this was going to kill him. Um, his wife was worried about his health. You know, he gave everything he had to following an instinctive knowing that this story had to be told. And truly, it's a piece of brilliance, you know, in the end, when you look at it, it just does something transformative. It explores an aspect of the human psyche um, that's really, really profound. And that when I think about dying, what I would miss is the opportunity to be hit with a creative urge that strong to want to make something beautiful that badly and to not be alive in this vessel to follow that. And I don't think those urges come along all the time in one's life. I mean, every once in a while we get these peaks and valleys of like a creative surge. I want to, I can see something I want to bring into the world. I want to make that's new, wholly new. And, um, and, and so death in a way is accepting the fact that what I will make that is wholly new would ultimately be myself. Cause I would be fully accepting that this form is going to be recycled. Mm. Um, but that urge to create something beautiful and profound that, uh, that, that we can share with others for them to be moved and expanded and inspired as well that that urge that i think creative people and everyone has but some people live at a further edge of that creative instinct and let it flow through them much more and they're not consumed so much with status or um, money per se i think that is possibly what might be opened up for us might might finally get more room maybe in this time the seeds of of urgent creative making is gonna start to come in um because i would welcome being part of and or finding for myself a seed of creative impulse that is as bold as what Francis Ford Coppola did with the making of Apocalypse Now. I mean, it's, and I'll just say one more thing. I mean, think about it. When you make a film, how many people you need to make a film? Mm -hmm. It involves so many people, you know, and then the editing and the thing. I mean, it's this huge piece of work. So you have to have such persistence and a vision to hold it through. And um, uh, I'm in awe of that. And, and yet not every piece of creative work has to be that bold and that comprehensive. It can be in the tedious little things and you can make a little piece of art to go on your dining room table when you sit down for breakfast. But that I would, I, I'd go back to saying that I feel like that is what I would miss if I had to die right now, if I died right now, that, that there's, there's maybe more creative juice in me and so I, I would be sad to not express it in this form. So many things um, come up in me when you say all that you say. It's, there's a lot of richness there. 
One is, is this notion of even the very nature of creativity. And it, it's, it's a curious thing that our culture is such that we have, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but we hold up these massive works, you know, that take years to do and blood, sweat and tears and like myopic devotion, you know, and hold those up as, as like creative expression. And I appreciate what you say at the end of what you just said that, you know, the creation could also be quite small and it, it maybe is somewhat the difference of this, um, it's the different energies of creativity. There's a, there's a kind of creativity that is this massive force, like water coming out of a fire hydrant, you know, um, that, and how, and how that can like blast through something, you know, but there's also water can just trickle and over time blast through rock too. Right. And so it's like all these soft and, gentle and slow expressions of creativity and these big bold expressions of creativity are all part of the spectrum and they're all important and I I, I don't think you would deny that for a minute um, but there's something else in what you say that reminded me back to this Leonard Cohen quote because some people might bristle a bit when he talks about um, the deep entertainment of religion you know and if we think about what religion is at its, at its um, linguistic roots, is it's what, what brings us back, what binds us back to the source of being, you know. And, and for some people, um, some kind of creative expression could be a religion, you know. It, it, it's what make a filmmaking could be a kind of religion that totally. binds people back. Um, or it could be flower arranging that or walks in the park or, or caring and play, caring for and playing with a child. There's all kinds of um, expressions of creativity that actually what the, the, the practice is, is bringing us back to the source of, of being. Um, and then the other thing that you said that I, or something that came to me in what all that you say is this notion of the, the very attachment to the structures of like, who is this one? Who am I? And what am I doing here? Um, if I have some story about who I am and what I'm doing here that is limited to this timeline of, you know, Helen Lowe or Lisa Fitzhugh or whomever we are, um, then, then we would get really afraid to die. We would get really afraid for our structures to die. But if our self-identity starts to become bigger and we can see ourselves in um, eventually all of life, like we can identify with any person, any being, any plant life, animal life, mineral life, you know, then suddenly our capacity to um, let go of the structures that, that we've been operating in or we've defined ourselves by becomes less terrifying because it's not the end of us. You know, we, it's actually the expansion of us. I, I become more than just Helen Lowe. I become Helen Lowe and Lisa Fitzhugh and the plant to my right and the, the, the sun outside. and um, 
And then also maybe I become what, what religion could invite us to. Not all religions do this, of course, but that the, the kernel, the essence of religion, then is like, oh, and I'm more than even this, this dimension. I'm more than this world as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my creativity, my contribution to life keeps going on even after this one that I think that I am. You know, has has returned to dust. Absolutely. And what if we were all just vessels for a creative energy field that's flowing through everything? And some of us, have, you know, Coppola has to, it flows through him and it comes out like a faucet, like a huge waterfall that's sprayed, you know, and other people, it flows like a beautiful stream that trickles and creates and, you know, fertilizes a valley. And we're, we're, we're just, it's just, that's just the flow. So if when I die, that energy just goes back into the all, into the creative allness, you know, the consciousness that's this ener- that energy, it's, it's sort of a, um, it's a relief because the creativity doesn't die. It just moves into different forms. Um, and it does feel like there could be an explosion of new creativity that emerges um, you know, in, in, in the aftermath, whenever that is, that we loosen the binding, the old stories and the inner critic, you know, um, uh, I think his name is Michael Ray. He's a teacher, a business school teacher at Stanford. He's taught creativity for 30 years. And the start to his syllabus, the first page is, the greatest barrier to your creativity is your inner critic. My job over this course is to basically dispel the power of your inner critic to release your creativity. Um, And I think society to date and all of the, uh, all of the uh, conditioning that we carry around with us and all the stories we have has really um, created a pretty strong inner critic in us. And that keeps us from, from being vulnerable and making things that are tender and beautiful and new. And, and I, I would say, just say that there's something in me that I'm feeling already a willingness to be even more transparent about who I am and what I feel, um, no matter the consequences. Um, and that kind of truth telling um, will be, it, it just, I, I feel liberated more than I've ever have before to be stepping into spaces with more truth, with more truth in my voice and my words. So I don't, that, I, that's a long elliptical thing and I don't want to lose the thread of the power of creativity, but I just want to link back one more time to this idea of water because I loved your description of it. It could be like a fire hose or it could be like a, a trickle what if, if going back to the met- metaphor I'm working with about the ocean, if water is life and life is creativity, we've been upended and we are now immersed in creative life right mm. now. We can't it, separate ourselves anymore the way we have in our little boats, mm-hmm. right? We are fully in it. It's covering us. We're swimming in it. We're swallowing it. You know, it's, 
And that gives me a sense of huge excitement because it means we're just, we're in a medium that, yeah, it feels unfamiliar because it's really, whew, it's, it's everywhere, it's all over us, but we could see it as dangerous mm-hmm. or we could start to get comfortable in it. Because water is the metaphor for soul too, soul and creativity and um, and the and, and our the yin and our emotions and the the yin aspects mm-hmm. of our nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to wonder about in terms of the power of water right now, and it's in love the Leonard Cohen um, thing you introduced right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like what you say so much that and in this case then if we use this metaphor that you wrote about yeah as you say we're upended we're out of our vessels um what if we even consider our vessels or some kind of a self-identity these self-constructs that you know um and these habitual ways of being that we identify with we're out of them and we're swimming in the water and we can drown in, in not having as much delineation, not having as much certainty, but we could also learn to swim together and to create circles. So like we're these rings where we don't weigh each other down, but we touch each other lightly and we help stay each other stay buoyant. buoyant even in the dark feelings, even because we're in it, we're in the water, the water, if the water is in motion, we've got to feel it. We can't like go, Oh, just go to the light. Just pretend that everything's fine. It's like, no, 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 no. Immerse in it. Let yourself feel it. Let yourself feel the grief. Let yourself feel the fear. Right. Let yourself also feel that, Oh, wait, I'm, I'm in a way bigger body of water. A body. I'm in a way bigger body, body. than I thought. <laughs> I'm in a body of water. It's not the body. It's not the little, you know, craft with the leaky edges and the kind of creaky oars, you yeah. know, that I've been uh, pulling on all my life to get yeah, row, 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 row your boat. <laughs> <laughs> like, in a way, it's like, God, I'm out of that thing. You know, it's exhausting. It was crappy anyway. It was uncomfortable. You know, I could never lay down and really rest. You know, <laughs> it's all edgy. <laughs> yeah. So now we're in the water and we're, you know, present to each other in a whole different way. And yes, it's terrifying. I get it. I was really feeling that yesterday of like, I was imagining what it would be to be in the water and we're in a circle of people. I have the memory. I have memories of stories of like the, the, the Navy um, when a ship would crash and um, the men would be in the water and have to wait for a long periods of time, right. To get picked up and what they were doing to survive and how they would feel and how they supported each other. I mean, it's, it, it's, we're so vulnerable out there. The size of this ocean, it's huge. It's, um, and it's turbulent, you know, after, uh, I, I, my, my son's dad and I split up, uh, 10 years ago, um, I was thrown into the ocean 
uh, just at the deep end I with no life raft with nothing and I remember it took me many years actually to come to shore um, I didn't even realize how far out in the ocean and how long I was but it was a long time of just trying to keep my head above water and I spent a lot of time um, scrambling and using too much energy I didn't know how to float um, I felt very alone there were no one else I felt very few people around me that I could talk to that understood where I was um, it was so scary but I remember a dream about three or four years in and the dream was so beautiful and as I think of it you know it brings me to tears but I I remember all of a sudden, in my dream, I was lying at the edge of, of, of the water, and my face was down, and there were waves coming over me, and the sun was shining, but I was on land. And I was getting air, and I could feel the earth. It was solid. And I was, I was exhausted, but I was on land. And I knew in that moment that I had finally come to shore. And I was never the same after that. After four, you know, it was a four-year journey to be immersed in grief and loss. And when I finally, you know, came ashore, I was able to then get up and turn my attention to life again, but in a totally different way. It was a totally different way. Anyway, I will say that the relief I felt of coming to shore was quite profound. And, and so I don't take this metaphor lightly. I really want people to know I do not take it lightly. I don't necessarily want to think that anyone is necessarily going to think this is fun. Mm -hmm. But it's where we are. And we know how to survive out there. We've done this before as human beings in our history and even as individuals in our lifetimes. There are people I know who've been through so much drama and survived it. Mm -hmm. They are the wise ones. They can help us and remind us what to do when we're in the middle. And Lisa, thank you so much for your story and your vulnerability. I think that's really important. I mean, you're one of the strongest people I know, and it's so important. And the people that know you likely uh, feel like I do, you know, that you are so strong. And it's so important for people to recognize that strength doesn't mean that we don't feel scared. Strength doesn't mean that we don't feel vulnerable. Strength doesn't mean that we don't feel overwhelmed. But what's interesting about the story you tell is you, you, you spoke about feeling all alone. And these individual life events, when other people aren't having similar life events, we can feel really alone. And it's, it's a hidden gift in this virus is that we are all in this together. Every country, you know, every person has, is being touched, whether you recognize it or not. Um, and eventually we will all recognize it. Yeah. And to recognize that we are not alone, we are not immune um, to the grief Mm -hmm. to the despair, mm -hmm. to the overwhelm, but we're also 
all capable of being there for each other and for moving through that and recognizing the greater potential here and and the love and the joy and the lightness that we can also share and and the pos- the possibility to literally change our lives and our civilization and to get off of the cycle we've been in and actually create a new cycle a new way like what do we want life to be like what do we want the world to be like how do we want to be with each other on the other side of this virus do we really want to keep the same corporate systems we've had do we really want to keep you know big agri farmer farm um agribusiness in charge of our food supplies you know um we have so many things that we can reconsider and and do together so here's what i think is going to be what's going to happen is that already right now and probably you know for some time now what's going to become more and more clear is we're going to look around and see people who still believe that they're in their boat and to everyone else that's in the water they're going to be like this person's insane they're in the water, but they're acting like they're in their boat. And so it will be such a cacophony and we will start to see that that is actually insanity mm-hmm. because they're not accepting reality. Mm-hmm. They're not in the water like what they're actually in. They're pretending they're in a boat. Mm-hmm. So it will be very jarring and we'll, we'll probably be more and more needing to help those people who still think they're in a boat um, because they're going to probably not do very well out in the open ocean. There's going to be sort of more fear for them as they start to realize if you pretend too long, you're still in a boat and not accept where you are. I think that that's a pretty dangerous, a pretty dangerous place to be. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have that as a, as a kind of a stimulant mm-hmm. for awareness mm-hmm. as we move forward making it that much more easy for us to go, oh no, the agribusiness model, not even close. Um, uh, (laughs) You know, know, it'll see, it'll appear as the insanity that it is to many, 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 many more of us, potentially. Yeah, and, and then becomes our big test, our test of can we include those ones that look and are behaving as if they're separate, you know, um, in, in the original, uh, Leonard Cohen quote, and he says, and people insist under the circumstances on describing themselves as liberal or conservative. It seems to me completely mad. And can we recognize that people will still consider to separate themselves, as you say, think that they're in a boat and how can we hold them lightly and with compassion and care um, and help and and not help like be a hero and save them, but um, be there for them as they start to recognize or invite them to recognize in gentle ways, or maybe we just recognize that they're not in a separate boat. And when they come to that recognition on their own, we can be there for them to help to include them in the circle. Yes. Just as a follow-up to that, as you make a really good point, we don't we'll want to make sure that we make room for them as they come to that awareness that they're in the water. I would wager that people who have been 
in the yachts for a long time are going to be the most exquisitely uncomfortable being in the water. Think of how much, how much different it is to go from hanging onto a log and being in the water to being in a yacht and being in the water. Different. And yeah. so I think in many ways, people who are living at the margins right now are even more equipped to understand how to be in this new space. And that gives me hope. In fact, that's very inspiring to think that the folks who've been suffering the most, that they might actually be closer to a knowing about what this ocean feels like. That's sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we're in a great equalizer and it, it allows for everybody to lend their perspective as valuable. I mean, that's what I hear out of your reflection, you know, like everybody's perspective is valuable and we might be able to learn. We can all learn from all these perspectives. Um, And people who we maybe have listened to least may have the most to tell us right now. It's been so helpful, Helen, to explore the metaphor with you today because it's helping me see it further, like really see it. Because our knowing is always going to be limited on some level. So metaphor gives us a way into something. And I'll just say that our willingness today to go in and keep playing this one out is giving me such hope in this moment like wow wow let's let's really be in this i'm very grateful i am too be well everybody be well everybody be well and 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 look for us in the water we're there Mm. we're just there we're we're finding our way and trying to float this has been naked conversations women uninterrupted If our conversation inspired or provoked you, we hope you'll start a meaningful exchange with the people in your life. We're grateful to Kevin McLeod, who generously provided this music, and to artist Tom X, a dear friend of Lisa's, for providing the beautiful painting that graces our show title. Until next time, may we all remember the sometimes miraculous power of real dialogue and practice having kind, curious, and naked conversations.